Open your uh, your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, or your device, chapter 4. Went through the first 12 verses last week of Acts chapter 4, and uh, we saw where, beginning of chapter 3, there's Peter and John at the gate beautiful of the temple, and, and uh, they come across this guy that had been lame from birth, and uh, uh, Peter just barrels into this guy, was staring at it, says, look at me. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy does. So a big crowd had um, gathered. And, and Peter, instantly, he, he understands. He, remember, he is filled now with the Holy Spirit. And, and he understands that, that things are different. He's been empowered by God to do the things of God. Uh, in reaching the people. So he uses this miraculous healing of this lame man and launches into using that and the crowd that's there to bring the gospel to this huge crowd. Uh, they gathered there in the temple precincts. Uh, empowered now by the spirit, Peter had spoken boldly. Uh, he told the Jews it was they that had murdered the Messiah. And uh, he uses the term the prince of life, which is a clear reference to the Messiah. They would understand that wording. Uh, and then he goes on to say that he is the one whom God had raised from the dead. You know, uh, Peter points out that they'd, they had done so in ignorance, uh, but that their ignorance was willful. <laughs> and in the kingdom of God, willful ignorance doesn't cut it. Uh, it doesn't cut it in a courtroom and it doesn't cut it uh, in the kingdom. Uh, well, gee, I didn't know. Uh, when I was doing jail ministry, I, sometimes I, I would go in. I would, I, first, I would tell the inmates, I'd say, you know what? The big difference between you and me is you got caught because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The second thing is, is I want you to raise your hand if you didn't know that what you were doing that was wrong that landed your <laughs> rear end in here. Raise your hand. I never had anybody raise their hand <laughs> because we know what sin is. Uh, these people will, were willfully ignorant and, and, and he says, that doesn't get you off the hook. Your ignorance doesn't. Because he reaches into the Old Testament at that point. He talks about Moses. He talks about Abraham. Uh, and he, he talks about the prophets that all of them foretold the coming Messiah. He said, look, God's word is right here. It's been available to you. You should have looked at it. You should have read it and you should have been expecting these things and you didn't. You chose ignorance. Um, Remember, all of this is done at Solomon's portico. If you looked at the Temple Mount, I showed some slides on that a few weeks ago, uh, which was an area that was lined with columns along the eastern flank of the Temple Mount. And Jerusalem being a walled city, the, the, the only way you could get into the city was through several gates. And because the temple butted up against the eastern edge of the city, the gates led right into the one gate. There's only one gate on the east side, right into the temple proper, the temple, uh, the court of the Gentiles, actually. And uh, that's where the beautiful gate was. So uh, it, it, that's where they met this lame guy. And that's where the crowd had gathered. Just inside the gate was called Solomon's Portico. So got this huge crowd there. Uh, and last week we saw that as the crowd gathered, Peter was speaking to the people. Uh, but they'd also gotten the attention of those who opposed their message. Uh, we looked at geographically, they were right across from the temple itself and there would have been stationed there people that were part of the temple guard, 
the priests, and then the, it talks about the Sadducees coming out there too. Um, that they were the ones who were, as the word says here, greatly disturbed. Why were they greatly disturbed? They did not like the message of the gospel. The, the Sadducees especially didn't like the references to the resurrection from the dead because they didn't believe in it. It was like they didn't believe in the supernatural. They were very uh, set in their beliefs, and that wasn't part of it. They stood absolutely opposed to the Pharisees. You hear about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and, and but they were opposed to one another except for one subject, Christ. They were totally aligned on that. So uh, they didn't like that, that Peter was preaching Jesus as being risen from the dead. So rather than respond to this uh, thinking, uh, which challenged their theology. It was a real challenge for them. Uh, the Sadducees and the priests, and they'd essentially called the police. <laughs> That's where the temple guard comes in. Uh, and they laid hands on the men, and I, I mentioned last week, not in a good way, and they arrested them. So it's late in the day. Uh, we're told that it was the ninth hour when they went into the temple, which was three in the afternoon. So they took these guys and they carted them off to jail to spend the night. So the next morning, the three of them, Peter and John and the formerly now lame guy, who was probably just, I, I, you know, I try to picture things that the Bible doesn't say. And I got to be careful here because you can kind of stray off. But what would that night have been like for this guy? I don't care that I'm in jail. He's probably dancing around his cell. He, I mean, he's just excited that he's got legs. Peter and John, on the other hand, are probably blown away at the power of God. Because now they're being used in ways that were unique. These are things that they had only seen, except for when Jesus had sent them out. Remember, he sent them out on a kind of an exercise to go and to, to do these things. Except for that, these were things that were unique to their master. And so now they are being used in the same way because they are now, as apostles, they represent Christ. That's where we get the word represent, but they are representing. That's the, the apostolic ministry was different in that they were directly called. I could go into, in Galatians, Paul defends his apostleship uh, because he was the one that was, we're told in 1 Corinthians, that he was one born out of due time. He wasn't part of the original bunch, but he was added in and he was instructed and he was discipled by Christ himself. So these guys, they go off to jail <laughs> and uh, they spend the night and then the next morning they're brought before the Sanhedrin. That's 71 of the most powerful men in the country. They were religious leaders, but they were also charged with carrying out civil matters. And uh, they were sort of a mixture. I mean, because, yeah, Pontius Pilate was still the, the, the prefect there in Jerusalem. And he was the one who would pronounce death sentences and all of that. But these guys had great power. They had the ability to, to pull the levers of power effectively. So much so, you got to remember too, many of these same men had been the same ones who had taken part of the six illegal trials uh, that the Lord Jesus had been subjected to about two months earlier. And he was, he was tried illegally six times. And the same guys are here that were there. So we need to remember a, a couple of things about this. First, uh, putting these men on trial had nothing to do with getting at the truth. I mentioned that last week. This wasn't about finding truth, discovering truth. This was about wrangling, legal wrangling. It was an indisputable fact that the layman had indeed been healed. They wanted to try to find something that they could hang on these guys, some way to accuse them. 
so that they could discredit them because they couldn't discredit the miracle. So now they're, they're essentially, you see in politics all the time where, you know, they'll go after somebody's character. Character assassination is a favorite thing with politicians. Oh, well, look at my opponent. They are so bad, and here's why. That's sort of what's going on here. Secondly, uh, their intentions were clear. And they, they asked a two-part question of the men. They said, by what power and in whose name have you done this? That's what they're doing. They're, that's how they want to try to hang them up. And I mentioned, too, that while their motives were less than honorable, they'd done this according to the test of a prophet from the book of Deuteronomy. So they're acting in accordance with God's word, but they're doing it with crooked motives. They're essentially doing their job. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, the, the miracle couldn't be denied. So therefore, their hope was to find a, a legal accusation against these guys. Uh, you know, if they'd done it according to a pagan god or, or, or sorcerers were a big deal back then. Uh, they, they wanted to, to try to be able to hang it on somebody, uh, but they couldn't. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, tells him flatly, the miracle had been done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In the name. Whose name is this done in? Let me tell you whose name it is. Uh, and, and he goes on to say, who, by the way, God raised from the dead. You want to ask whose power this was done in? <laughs> it was the power of God. So as we wrapped up last week in the first 12 verses uh, here in Acts chapter 4, we saw that Peter actually flipped the script. That, and that's a term, what it means is they're coming at you, and Peter takes that, and again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he just turns it around and he puts it right back onto them. And I love that. That's what happens here, because these guys were thunderstruck. They had no idea how to respond to it. They, weren't, they were expecting these guys to cower. Because this whole thing was set up to intimidate them. And they weren't intimidated. So in Matthew uh, 12, 24, this is not something new. This is a tactic that they use. This is right out of their playbook when they're trying to accuse him of doing this by some other power, some other name. Uh, In Matthew 12, 24, Jesus uh, had... He had done a healing as well. He healed a blind and mute man and he delivered him from demon possession. Now... They weren't able to dispute that miracle either. So the Pharisees then accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, who's the chief demon, Satan, uh, the ruler of demons. And, and so this is not new. This is a tactic. And it's not a tactic. Again, it's designed to get at the truth. It's a tactic that's designed to get them off the hook from having to deal with the subject at hand, which is that Jesus healed this guy and he did raise from the dead. So as Peter spoke, uh, again, under the, the Holy Spirit, he goes on the offensive and he actually levels charges against them. Uh, he not only reveals in whose name and by what power the man who stood before them was now whole. Uh, he reaches back into Psalm 118 and tells the council that they're the fulfillment of it. And he just pokes them in the nose with this because he points out that Jesus himself was the stone which, and he says not the stone which the builders rejected. He says, he's the stone which you builders rejected. And, and he, he's looking right at these guys. He's the, the stone that you'd rejected. And he has become the chief cornerstone. And they understood perfectly well what he was referring to uh, as he said this. He was talking about the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, whom they rejected out of hand. So Peter concluded his comments before the council, not only informing them that the man had been healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, uh, he goes on to make an exclusive claim. He tells them there's no other name 
You want to know whose name this is? Let me tell you whose name it is. And by the way, there is no other name. You can't go beyond this. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I, 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 I mentioned last week, I, I just picture the scene and I, I, I just imagine the stunned looks, the angry looks of the men in the council as Peter just unloads on them. So picking it up in verse 13, uh, now we read, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men and they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Uh, this is just a powerful, this is one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. You know, they're uneducated, they're untrained, but look at the way that they're behaving. Look at the things they're saying and all of that. Oh, they've been with Jesus. <laughs> just, like I said, this whole thing was designed to intimidate and, and Peter's directness and boldness uh, was totally unexpected here. Uh, they wanted these men to acquiesce. They wanted them to say, you know, we're really sorry that we did that. And, you know, what can we do? And all of that. And, and I think that there's part of that is these guys, as I mentioned, they were there. They were the ones that were conducting the trials when Jesus was on, on trial before they executed him. And they saw, perhaps they knew that Jesus had totally caved at that point. I mean, that Peter had totally caved at that point. <laughs> Jesus didn't cave. That there, you know, in the courtyard of the high priest, the, the, one of the guys is standing here when the, the girl was saying, you know, aren't you the Galilee? No, 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 no. And he curses and he gets pretty upset and he hears the cock crow and all of that. So this would have been still fresh on Peter's mind as well. And I would imagine that that produced in him a commitment, an a- absolute commitment to just speak it like it is, uh, unashamedly, unafraid. And remember, none of this would have taken place aside from the work of the Holy Spirit now dwelling within these men. It's something I like. I, I've thought about this over the years, is that, and I think it's true. Uh, and that's that when the Holy Spirit shows up at the same time as you do, <laughs> he can make you look pretty good. And, and that's really true. I mean, I see people, they have this big following and all of that. It's like, all right, well, you know, whatever on that. Very often that following is because the Spirit of God has got a hold of this guy and he's using them powerfully. One of the things I loved about my pastor, uh, Chuck Smith, the guy that founded the Calvary Chapel movement, was it never went to his head. It, it never did. He just simply was, you know, I'm a servant of God. And if God wants to use me, then let God use me. I, I'm, not, I'm not here to impress people. I'm not here to draw a big crowd. I'm certainly not here for the money. He was just there as a humble servant. And I think that there's a lesson in that for us. Luke here, he clearly mentions that these were uneducated and untrained men. Uh, something I want to speak to as far as that goes. So does that mean that education and training are a bad thing? No, <laughs> it's not at all what's being said. It's not necessarily. There are times where education can be a real issue. Uh, I was at a pastor's conference a number of years ago, and the question of education came up during a panel discussion. Uh, a bunch of pastors up on the stage, and and again, Pastor Chuck took this question. They said, well, what about education? Because many Calvary Chapel pastors had no education outside of just being raised up within the church that they were in and, and just relying on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and And I loved Chuck's response because he said, as far as education goes, go for all you can. 
Get all the education that you can. But here's the caveat. Never rely on it. Rely on the Lord. Folks, God raises up great minds. I I have a whole set of favorite guys that I love to study the things that they have to say. Uh, there's an old saying uh, in pastor circles anyway, that, that I can see further when I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And I love that God has raised up great theological minds. I got to be careful because there's a lot of garbage out there. There's a lot of stuff out there that really boils down to doctrines of men. And yet I love to study people like, uh, gosh, <laughs> there's a whole list. I'm not going to go into the list, but I, I just love to read some of the stuff these guys say. You know, Charles Spurgeon is one, a great preacher in the 19th century. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, I mean, the list goes on and on. I could just, uh, Charles Barkley, uh, so on. Because I love their perspective. And, and I believe that, that God has inspired these men to write about the deep things of God. But I want to tell you something. By far, a vast amount of the work, the majority of the work of putting forth the gospel is accomplished through everyday people like you and me, just regular folks who simply love Jesus. They want to represent him, represent him well. I believe the spirit of God honors that. I believe he blesses that. Another thing about this scene is it's entirely reminiscent of the encounters that many of the same guys here had repeatedly with the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. Opposition is part and parcel with speaking truth. The God of this world doesn't like it. You're no threat when you're out there banging along, acting like the rest of society. But when you stand up, when your voice is heard and you're speaking God's truth, might as well know that there's a target on your back and, and the enemy can't get at you. It, no weapon, the Bible tells us no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And, and that, yeah, are, are you an enemy now of the, of the, the God of this world? Absolutely. Because he's an enemy of the cross. Peter here, he disregarded their positions of authority. <laughs> he exposed their, I talked about religious dogma last week, where you do it just because that's what we do. These guys were so dogmatic. He exposed their carnal attitudes. He also exposed their crooked agenda because they were in it very clearly for personal gain. And um, yeah, I, I'm in a rabbit trail, but I, I got ground to cover here. So, the point is, in similar fashion, as the council endeavored to intimidate, confront these guys, uh, they become the ones being confronted by, as I mentioned last week, these hicks from Galilee. These were uneducated. They were truly uneducated, untrained men. They were looked down upon by the people in the southern part of the country because the, the, where they are here in Jerusalem, that's where the white collar guys are. That's where all the important guys are. And these guys were fishermen from up in Galilee, up in the northern region. And they looked at them as just being like hicks. They were just country boys. And you know, what do they know? It was their attitude. They didn't have any formal education. They caught fish for a living. They didn't have any religious training. The thing about it was, Peter and John were not intimidated by the Sanhedrin in the least. Uh, and they spoke about... Uh, they spoke about biblical concept, biblical realities. They, they spoke about those things with depth and confidence and clarity. Uh, again, the work of the Holy Spirit. Bottom line, when people look at my life, I don't want them to see how much I know or how much I knew. I don't want them to know how hard I've studied. 
I certainly don't want him to know that I've got letters after my name. I want him to know, I want him to see that I've been with Jesus. Folks, that's a, that's a huge aspiration. That when people's life touch yours, let them come away with the knowledge that, you know, there's something different about them. I think they've been with Jesus. They're being kind when there's no call to be kind. They're being loving when I'm not being very loving. They're being clear about where their life is oriented in their worldview, but they're not being uh, confrontational or offensive. I might be offended, but that's not because the person's trying to offend. I just want him to know. I want him to see that I've been with Jesus. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. <laughs> nothing will shut your mouth more than the truth. This guy's right there. Now, I also want to mention that this is a moment for these guys. God would hold them accountable. They are looking with their own eyes. They are seeing this man standing there. They can't come up with anything against it. Therefore, if they're not going to cooperate with what's going on, their lives at that moment were in a vice. They were being squeezed. They were being pushed. They couldn't claim the man had not been healed (laughs) because he had. The city was in an uproar about it. I mean, this news had just flashed through the city. They couldn't claim that the apostles had done it through some strange power. They hadn't. There was nothing they could pin on them. So their choice was simple. Believe it or bury it. How often I have shared the gospel with people over the years. And yes, there have been wonderful times where I've seen people come to faith, come to believe the message. There have been a lot of times where I have stood there and watched someone bury it. You ever tried to bury it yourself? You ever tried to bury some truth? The Bible tells us that the word of God is like planting seeds. Luke chapter eight, the sower went out to sow and the seeds are the word of God. We're also told that the word of God doesn't go out and come back void. It doesn't come back ineffectively. So what happens when you bury a seed? (laughs) Yeah, under the right circumstances, that thing will germinate. It'll grow through asphalt. It just will. Uh, There are times where it's discouraging. You're sharing the gospel with someone and you think that the lights are on, nobody's there. The wheel's turning, but the hamster's gone, whatever, however you want to characterize it. But the point is, the point is, be encouraged. Boldly plant the seeds of the gospel with those in your life who are in your circle of influence. Don't worry about the results. Let God handle the results. Folks, it's just about being faithful. It's not about the product. It's about, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It's not about you know, fruit. We let God produce the fruit. We simply, it's about being faithful. And if God has put someone in my life and in, in my circle to plant the seeds of the gospel with, regardless of whether or not they push back, regardless of whether or not it looks like they're receiving it, regardless of whether they're just angry and walk away, those seeds are there and God is faithful. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to go aside outside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? I like that it says, what shall we do to these men? Not what shall we do with these men? <laughs> what, what shall we do with, do to them? For indeed that a noticeable, notable miracle has done, been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. In other words, the whole city knows about it and we can't deny it. 
but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. Now, now the Greek is really interesting in this. It's, it literally says, let us threaten them with a threat. <laughs> in other words, this is emphatic. They are putting a great emphasis on, we are going to, you know, we like the term, you know, I'm going to threaten you within an inch of your life. That's sort of what this is going at. It's, it's saying, we're going to threaten them severely. We're going to threaten them with a threat that if you break this thing that we're telling you, you've got real trouble on your hands. And they meant it. And they had the power to do it. They said, let us severely threaten them that from now on, they speak to no man in this name. Whose name did you do this in? They told them, well, we don't want to hear it. We certainly don't want to do business with him. So our solution is shut up. Just just close your mouth. Don't go spreading this around anymore. They hadn't found any legal grounds to accuse them. And they knew that it would be a fool's errand to try to discount the fact this miracle had taken place. So I want you to also notice here, none of them attempted to disprove the resurrection. These guys didn't like the resurrection. Many of them didn't. Some of them believed in it. But none of them make efforts to disprove the resurrection because by this time, remember the Apostle Paul says that the resurrected Christ was seen by over 500 people. And they couldn't disprove that either. Nobody even tries. And this would have been the place here before the council, here before a hearing, a legal hearing of the Sanhedrin. This would have been the place for them to say, well, about that resurrection, we want to talk about it. Nobody says a word. Remember that in all of this, all that Peter and John are guilty of is healing a guy that had been lame from birth. (laughs) But that wasn't the concern of the religious leaders. Here's what their concern was. It wasn't the, the power of the miracle. Their concern was the power of the message. Remember, we talk about miracles are there to illuminate, to attest to the power of the message, the power of the gospel, the power of God. Miracles in and of themselves really don't serve much purpose rather than having a wow factor because God can bend the laws of nature anytime he wants. He kind of owns them. But it was the power of the message. That was what put these guys off. And the power of the message was synonymous with the power of the name of the one whose message it is. So that's what's going on here. They don't care about whether this guy was healed or not. They care about the launching point that these guys used to tell them about Jesus, the Messiah, and the fact that he rose from the dead. They don't want to hear it. And they don't want these guys to speak it. Peter just told them there's no other name under heaven. There's, there's no other name among men through which one could be saved. Verse 18, then they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Good luck with that. So their solution, not a word. We don't want to hear you. We don't want another word on this. They want to shut these guys up. And this is in the Greek. Again, this is a forcible statement. The command is absolutely not to utter. It's like if somebody does that to you, keep your gap shut. That's what they're saying to these guys. Not a word. They want the name of Jesus to be spoken of again. (laughs) What a great plan. Yeah, what they're saying is stop talking about Jesus and stop helping people in his name. What about all the people who are praising God for the healing? What about the 8,000 new converts in Jerusalem? (laughs) Peter and John are only two voices in a symphony. An absolute symphony of voices now declaring Jesus as Lord. Yeah, this is a good plan. You guys just be quiet about this. Don't want to hear it. 
Now, I, I, I'm going to launch into something, just a side deal here, but uh, I, I thought about the thought police in, in George Orwell's novel, 1984. <laughs> They've been around for a long, long time. Long before George, or- George Orwell, these guys are essentially saying, don't go there. And folks, there are those in our society today who would suppress our right to freely express our beliefs and our views. And they would make it illegal to share the gospel. I mean, that's a stated agenda in some circles. I'm not making it up. So the question then becomes, what do we do about it? If and when that suppression comes, what's our response to that? Let's read on. (laughs) Verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, there are a number of things going on here. I'm going to look at four of them. First is that Peter and John are challenging the Sanhedrin. These guys, these fishermen from Galilee, are challenging the most powerful men in the nation, the judges of Judaism. And they're saying, you need to choose between God and yourself. This is a direct challenge to them. The second thing is they're telling the chief priests that their wishes are contrary to the God that they claim to worship. Next, they're telling the lawyers that they're ordering Peter and John to break the law of Moses. Don't say what you have seen. Don't repeat what you have heard. That's against the law. That's against their law. Lastly, they're telling the religious authorities, and this is a big deal for them because they love their power. They're telling the religious authorities that they no longer recognize their authority. They're going to follow God now directly. We don't need you. And folks, a misnomer in religious circles and something I would warn about is I grew up in a religion that that religion put itself in the place of being between me and God. There was me. In that case, it was the LDS church. But there was me and then there was the church and then there was God. That is absolute heresy. There is nothing in God's word that puts the church in that place. The church's job, according to the book of Ephesians, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And this is equipping. That's the time that we spend. This is equipping. This is what we're doing. When the church puts itself in that place, and these guys put themselves in that place, Jesus said, look, you put yourself in the seat of Moses. And essentially you thrash it. And that's a paraphrase, but but he was he did not miss words with these guys. So when the church does that, it's a travesty because it's not me, the church, and God. It's me and God, and the church is over here. The church is there for instruction. The church is there for fellowship. We've looked at here in Acts for fellowship, for prayer, for studying the apostles' doctrine, for, for setting aside a time to worship. That's the job of the church. It's not to get you to God. It's not to get God to you. There is not a priestly function in the Old Testament sense any longer. It's a direct relationship. And these guys, there's, <laughs> these guys are saying, you know what? We're not subject to your authority. We're subject to God's. A direct application for us is as Christians, we should be those who are an example of what it is to obey civil authority. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, if you don't want to fear the law, obey it. Pretty simple. If you don't want to be in trouble, if you don't want to be in trouble with the law, don't be a lawbreaker. I mean, that's just common sense. 
the Apostle Peter would go on to, to write in his first letter that it's better to unjustly suffer for doing what's right than to justly suffer for doing what's wrong. When Peter says in verse 19, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. He's essentially outlining the principle that consideration for God's will comes before consideration for the will of man. And that's just how it is. If, if those two are in direct conflict, the choice for God's people is very clear. Verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. The city is just on fire here. Like I said, thousands naming the name of Christ now. Uh, these guys are being diminished. It says uh, in verse 22, for the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. Notice again, no one in the council takes them on about what they had said. And the reason for that is because what they had said was true. It's kind of hard to fight against the truth. And the news was spreading. A lame man, he was a highly recognizable figure, says here, and, and Luke inserts here that he was 40 years old. He does that on purpose because he wants us to know this guy's been around. This guy was known. He couldn't walk. And he couldn't walk all of those years that he was laid by the gate beautiful every day to beg from the people, to beg alms from the people. And they knew it. He was someone that was known. The other news was uh, that was no doubt spreading was the message of salvation, which Peter had been preaching to the crowds, using the miracles as a launching point to bring the gospel. And as the Holy Spirit moved upon the people's hearts, a deep conviction, we're told, we see that uh, both of these times, a deep conviction came about as they considered his words. He boldly asserted that it was they, the Jews, again, who had rejected their Messiah. It was they who had put Jesus on the cross. Yeah, they had sought the Romans' help, but they were the ones that incited it. Then to discover that they didn't have to carry that burden because as that conviction came, they were greatly burdened. What must we do? We see in chapter one, okay, I understand my heart is pierced. It says that they were pierced to the heart. What must we do? What do we do? And Peter's answer, one word, repent, change your mind about God to discover that they don't have to carry that burden or the burden of their own sins in general. To discover that repentance was available through the work of the cross, that their sins, as Peter says here, the sins could be blotted out, just wiped away. That's the message of the gospel. In all of this, there was a divine shift taking place now in Jerusalem. Attention was beginning to come off of the religious leaders who had held on to their power for too long. Attention was coming on to these men who had been among those first to initially follow Jesus. And now they were spreading the message of salvation to any who would simply believe. That's it. Uh, I was at a, Stacy and I were at a, a funeral for my sister-in-law up in uh, Washington State last weekend. And I went up to her son, who I know is a believer. And I said, Billy, where was your mom at? Because she had li lived a, a pretty reckless life and all that. Um, I said, where was your mom at with the Lord when she when she passed away? He said, well, Uncle John, I was able to share the gospel. And she responded. And, and she asked Jesus to come into her life. She turned from her sins. 
And I just smiled and I said, it sounds like minimum entry requirements to me. And it is. If you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. I praise God. I look forward to seeing Stephanie when I get there. So all of this is why the persecution of the people now is mounting. As I mentioned, this is only Peter's second time out. <laughs> and we don't know if there were other times in between. They were going to the temple every day, and we understand that. This is the second time it's recorded, and, and they end up getting thrown in, in the clink. But in Matthew 16, Jesus had said, he had told these guys, he said, look, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And when he said that, he left that pretty open-ended. He never said they won't try, and they do. They do today as much as they did back then. Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Oh, I bet that was a conversation. They'd been threatened by the highest authority in the nation, (laughs) commanded not to preach again in the name of Jesus. Now, they're no doubt seeking wisdom among their peers because they know that the Sanhedrin has not made these threats idly. They knew. They saw what they did to Jesus. They knew these guys had the power to carry it out. Same group that convinced Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus. I want to also mention that their threats would continue to increase. In chapter 5, we see them once again being taken before the council, before the Sanhedrin. This time, before they let them go... They had them severely beaten. And when we get there, I, I love that passage because it's like they leave that. and They're like, are you excited that we got beat up for Jesus? I mean, and that's paraphrased, but they're saying they're so excited because they suffered for the name of their master. That that they were counted worthy to suffer. And it's, just, it's a great passage. I don't, I'll preach the whole thing now if I get going. But the point is, is that the persecution will increase. If you look at church history, or you look at the the history of the early church, there was great need in Jerusalem. We'll talk about that next week. Because to turn your back on Judaism was turning your back on a life. To turn your back on Judaism meant that your family no longer, they shunned you. You were not part of that family if you embraced Messiah, Jesus. You no longer were welcome at the temple. And when the temple, when you were excommunicated, that was everything. You no longer had the means to make a living because you were shunned. The people would, would just turn, they would act like you didn't exist. There was a lot going on here and there would be a lot more that would go on in the name of being persecuted for the Lord Jesus than what these guys are enduring by being essentially spanked and sent out. Don't you say anything about that anymore. It would get a lot worse. So they're talking to their companions and uh, I would imagine they're seeking wisdom. Well, what should we do? These guys are serious. And, and I love it. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, uh, the words of Solomon, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety or victory. Uh, there's victory in a multitude of counselors. In other words, when I'm faced with a tough decision, when I'm faced with a, a, something that, that is a big deal in my life, I want to seek other godly people, men and women who I trust, to be able to say, look, let me lay this out for you. And I want some honest feedback. Persecution we see here in the early days in the church in Jerusalem, was it was only the beginning. The entire empire would be set up on its edge by the time this stuff was done. 
Now, according to church tradition, all of the apostles would face not only persecution, but all but John would die a martyr's death. They would be executed for their faith in Christ. A couple of weeks ago, when we had the gentleman from Far Reaching Ministries here, he put the video on the wall and we saw literally one face after another and the caption underneath was died for their work of the gospel, for for their testimony of Jesus. Folks, that's just not something that's on the screen for us to go, wow, I, I think that that's really great. That's really happening. There are parts of this world where persecution is huge. And we need to be aware of it. Now, Peter would also know that this is coming because Jesus had told him so. In John chapter 21, we see him, uh, (laughs) Jesus tells him that when he's older, someone would gird him, take him captive, gird him about, take him captive and lead him where he didn't want to go, prophesying the manner of death that Peter would die. Jesus told him straight up, you will die for your testimony of me. But these early Christians... They and their companions, they resolved to follow Jesus anyway, praying for courage and boldness and facing what would no doubt be a very difficult road ahead. Verse 24, so when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. I love the way these guys launch right into prayer. Now, the word voice here in verse 24, it's in the singular it's not plural. And what it probably is, is that it didn't mean that all of them prayed individually, but it was likely that uh, what was happening was that one person was praying and the others were standing in agreement in one accord. Another thing about this in verse 24, the word Lord here is not the normal word that's rendered Lord. Usually the Greek word for Lord is kurios. And it simply means Lord. This is a different word. This is despotes. And what that word means, it's used for a slave owner or a ruler with unquestionable power. It's a, it's a way different word. So they're praying with power and confidence because they knew God was in control in the midst of these really difficult circumstances. They're saying, you know what? You are the one, you are the sovereign over us. You are the one who controls all of it. We're acknowledging your power. We're acknowledging your strength. We're acknowledging your provision and you are the Lord. You are our Lord. And in that, we're praying that you give us the boldness to carry these things out. It's a strong statement. Another thing I see in this is they're praying in accord with the scripture. And that's a wonderful thing. They're quoting Exodus 20, Psalm 146, verse 25. Who by the mouth of your servant David said, why did the nations rage and why and the people plot vain things? And the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So continuing their prayer, now they quote Psalm 2, where David speaks prophetically in connection with the opposition of the governments of the earth, the rulers of the earth coming together against the Lord and his Christ. Now, This is a psalm that has a future fulfillment when Christ comes to set up his kingdom. All right. But these guys borrow it because there's an application to them there in Jerusalem that day. They understand this is this is talking about the millennial reign of Christ. But they take it and they say, look, look at the leaders that are coming against us. We see this in your word. We see that there's a relevant application to us here and now. What's interesting is as these guys were facing mounting persecution, that they were able to draw comfort, courage, boldness, because they understood these things had been spoken of in the scripture. 
Now, I have little doubt they were also considering the words of Jesus because uh, he had warned them. He said, you know what? In the world, you're going to have trouble. He tells them flatly. He just lays it out. He says, you know what? And yeah, the Bible word is tribulation, but that's trouble. He says, you know, in the world you'll you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. That's the Bible verse. Rough translation, American slang. In the world, you're going to have trouble. Cheer up. <laughs> that's what he says. It's worth noting that they prayed by the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures were woven into the body of their their prayers. I love this. I, I just think, it, it, you know what? In Psalm 1, you know, the, that I want to be somebody who meditates on the word of God day and night. And as I hide the word of God in my heart, it comes out. And and as I pray, it comes out. Uh, do you want to understand the will of God in a given circumstance? Pray according to the scripture. By the way, the leaders had perceived these men to be uneducated and untrained. Their knowledge of the scripture and their command of the scripture is absolutely notable here. Again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing those things out. Jesus had told them, he said, look, the ministry of the spirit is threefold. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he will bear wit. He will guide you into all truth is the second one. And that's what's happening here. He will bring those things to your remembrance. And third, he will glorify me. He will look like me. And these guys do. Their lives have shifted. They're looking more like their master as they go along in their behaviors and in their assertion of the, the truth of God to their, to their culture. Verse 27, for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before uh, to be done. That's a great statement. Now, Psalm 2, it actually goes on to say that God, the Father, that he'll give the nations uh, to the Messiah as a gift. And then he'll give him the authority to break them with a rod of iron, shatter them like earthenware. I mean, that's a powerful psalm. It warns earthly rulers to submit to the Messiah because his wrath will soon be kindled. It ends by saying how blessed are the people uh, who take refuge in him. Now, the reason the church quoted this psalm in their prayer is this. They recognized that it had already been partially fulfilled. Uh, the rulers, their rulers, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Roman soldiers and the angry crowd that, that was there at the crucifixion, they banded together in their opposition of Jesus. They were also sure the remainder of the psalm would be fulfilled as well. God's wrath was coming. And in light of that fact, they were not the ones who needed to be afraid. It was those who opposed his Messiah who needed to fear. So they're praying this. They're saying, Lord, we need boldness. We're, we've got some opposition here. We've got opposition of very, very powerful men who have literally threatened us with our lives now, threatened us with a threat. And we need you. We need your strength. We need your power. We need your anointing. We need you, you to go before us in this. In verse 28, it tells us that they understood that the crucifixion didn't happen because God had been unable to protect his son. That's not what was going on at all. It happened because the cross and every event surrounding it were part of God's plan for redeeming humanity. When we look at that, I, things that make me scratch my head, I don't understand it. 
I don't understand how God works all things together for good. That's essentially what's going on here. Uh, how did he allow the Jews to come against? How did, and he allows all these things, but they work together for him. He is always in control. And that's what the, the disciples, that's what the Christians are asserting here. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant that your servants may with that grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Great passage. So first of all, they call themselves his bond slaves. This is a different word than when they talk about your servant, Jesus. Uh, this is doulos. This is a willful slave. This is somebody who has identified with his master and now chooses to, to, to be a servant of his master. They call themselves that. They made it absolutely clear who they intended to obey. They would obey God, not the nation's unbelieving leaders. In their prayer, the Christians, they make three specific petitions to God. They're asking God for three things. The first is they prayed for God to look upon the threats made by the religious leaders. They say, look upon their threats. They know that these men are enemies of the cross. That's a given. They're enemies of the gospel. Their petition is essentially trusting God to work, but they don't tell God how. You know, they're not. Remember <laughs> when the disciples came back and said, yeah, Lord, you want us to call down fire on them? <laughs> I always, I, whenever I read that, I think if I was Jesus, I would have said, go ahead. <laughs> See how that works out for you. But the point is, is they're, they're saying, look, look on the, these guys error. Look on their threats. But they're absolutely trusting God with how to work that out. So they're praying that. The second is they prayed that God would grant them boldness. Their petition to God was, it wasn't to protect them from the religious leaders. It wasn't to protect them from suffering. That's not mentioned here. Their petition was to ask God for the power to be free from fear. That he would grant them boldness to speak as they spoke forth his word in light of the threats. This is a marvelous prayer. Finally, they pray that God would stretch out his hand to heal. I'll tell you what, there there are groups (laughs) that take this verse and run it up a flagpole that it shouldn't be run up. Essentially, what was going on in these early moments of the church. I mean, these, these are the first moments of the church. With the gospel, God was using miracles, signs and wonders to affirm the message. They attested to the message. Does God still do signs and wonders and miracles? Yeah, he does. That's the exception rather than the rule, though, I would say. I mean, that was going on here. You got to realize God was just establishing the church. These things were happening and they were happening to get people's attention, not to keep their attention on the miracle, but to put their attention on the miracle maker. We've talked about that here in Acts. So important that we understand that. This is, miracles are never to be an end unto themselves or some show. But they're beseeching God here. They're saying, stretch out your hand to heal. Why? Because it gives us an inroad for the gospel. It gives us a way to put forth the message. You can not only heal people's wounds, you can heal people's hearts. You can give them a new heart. If they'll but repent, turn from their sins, embrace Jesus. So essentially theirs was a partnership with God, (laughs) sort of. (laughs) He would do the miracles 
and it would be up to them to faithfully proclaim Jesus. Uh, we have a similar partnership. We trust God to do the work and we are simply faithful with the message. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. I thought they were already filled. Yes, they were. How many times can you be filled? Lots. <laughs> they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, the shaking here was God's confirmation that their prayers had indeed been heard. He doesn't always do that. Have you noticed that? Tear get done praying. And you're like, I remember one time I, I prayed and it was a turning point in my life. And I, I got down on my knees and I prayed and I got up and I had no inclination to call my buddies. I just recommitted my life to the Lord. I had no inclination to do anything. But oh my goodness, did my life begin to shift because God is faithful. Not only had their prayers been heard, they'd been answered. Be encouraged. God doesn't always immediately answer our prayers, but know this. He always hears them. Always. And you don't have to have an earth-shaking experience to, to work that out. You can trust. He hears your prayers. He acts on our prayers. He doesn't act the way often we want him to act because he sees way beyond where we are. And he's, but, you, but you can always rest assured that, that regardless of how my prayers work out, that it's always for my good because he loves us and he's faithful. And, and he knows way better than we do what we need. I've, I've noticed many times along the road that God is nowhere near as interested in how comfortable I am in that moment as to what it is he wants to do in my life. That's what he's doing with these guys. They're not comfortable. They're facing great adversity and it would be mounting adversity. But they didn't pray, God, deliver us from the, the adversity. They said, God, give us the ability to deal with it. Their prayers had been heard. Their prayers were being answered. Notice the text doesn't say that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to dance around and do all kinds of goofy stuff. That's not what it says. They prayed for boldness, to speak God's word without fear. That's exactly what happened. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Praise God. 